Hello, everybody. Happy New Year to all of you and welcome to Vantage Point, where the vantage is the point. I'm Troy Jennings. And I am Eric Pope. We thank you for joining us on the premiere episode of this podcast. This podcast is a part of the platform Our Father's Table. Remember to follow Our Father's Table on Facebook for more content such as breadcrumbs hosted by Aaron. Also, we know that you will be blessed by this podcast and we ask that you not keep it to yourself. Please share it with someone else. Help us to please spread the word. So vantage point. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines vantage point as a position or standpoint from which something is viewed or considered. On this show, you will get just that from both of us. Our topics will cover a little bit of everything. We hope that you are informed, entertained, and encouraged. And we all need that, especially in the times we're living in today. So before we go any further, let's take some time to introduce ourselves. Aaron, uh, who are you? I am Aaron. I am a content creator, a connector, a cultural specialist, a twin, an elder in the Lord's Church, more importantly, a Bible enthusiast, because I love the Word of God. I'm one who's gifted to serve and support and all around just glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, in some ways, some of you who are following our father's table will know of me. I've helped to record and edit and do videography for breadcrumbs. Uh, In this season of my life, I find myself to be someone who's growing, someone who's evolving. Uh, I am an actor. I'm an artist. I'm a creative. I've been acting since about... um, high school. I've gone on to study acting and theater specifically at college. I have a degree in theater from Towson University. I've acted professionally for quite some time now. won't tell you my age, but black don't crack, so that's good. (laughs) And uh, besides that, I've done commercials, uh, feature films, voiceover work, Uh, And during COVID, uh, oh, I've also taught theater professionally in public speaking. And uh, during COVID, I've gotten involved in uh, videography, as I mentioned, with uh, breadcrumbs. And also I uh, help record for the new Antioch Church in Baltimore, Maryland. So I mentioned COVID. Uh, We all are still in COVID. Happy New Year. But, you know, COVID is still here. We're still in the middle of a pandemic So life during the pandemic, what would you say that's been like for you, Aaron? Evolutionary. I have enjoyed COVID in the sense that I am growing and evolving. Um, I'm learning more about myself. I'm learning more about people. Um, I think that um, it is important that people um, understand themselves and what they can offer uh, in the hopes that they can offer them best selves or the best version of themselves. Um, and so for, for me, COVID is an opportunity where I got an opportunity to basically get the best version of myself to give to other people through trial and error. I like that. I like that. And really that last part through trial and error that we don't always necessarily, uh, get it right, but we can use it as an opportunity to grow into, um, to learn. 
uh, I would say COVID for me has been revelatory. Um, I think one of the things that I think we talked about before is I think that COVID has removed a lot of the distractions that a lot of people have had in their lives. So uh, when I say distractions, I mean things that can prevent us maybe from dealing with the places and the spaces within inside of us that we have abandoned or neglected. Um, so now the clubs are closed, you know, uh, the bars are closed, the restaurants are closed. You can't hang out with your friends or see your family as you might have. And while those things can be valuable, perhaps some of us have used those as uh, crutches or ways to cope or deal or continue to compartmentalize or suppress things within inside of us that needed to be addressed. So for me, uh, one of the things I'm thankful for, um, right before COVID, I actually started going back to therapy. Um, and one of the things I want to promote on this podcast, go to therapy. If Indeed. you haven't had, <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. If, if you don't have a therapist, please, please, at least once, Go to see a therapist. It, it, it can be life changing. And I've had the same pair, uh, therapist on and off for about three or four years now. And um, one thing led to another and I had kind of lapsed going. But right before COVID, uh, I thank God that something said, hey, go back. <laughs> and um, I'm thankful. Uh, one of the people who we probably will mention a lot on this show is Dr. Anita Phillips. Yes, yes. Uh, we both, I think, really admire her work. And one of the things that she says is that uh, prayer is a weapon, but therapy is a strategy. And one of the things I'm thankful for about therapy is it's given me a lot of strategies to be able to deal with life and, uh, and deal with me. Because I think really when you learn about you and how to deal with yourself and soothe whatever hurt or pain you have, then everything else will open up because it's not what's happening to you, but it's what's for me, what's going on inside of me. And so um, COVID has given me that chance to be able to really, really deal with me and really grow in places that I've needed to grow in. Well, today we're going to be talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. As you all know, this film is currently on Netflix. We actually got a chance to see it in the theaters uh, it had a limited theatrical run. You know, of course, with COVID, theaters are uh, mostly closed. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film. Yes. Um, August Wilson is the genius behind this story. Uh, for those of you who don't know August Wilson, he wrote uh, a series of 10 plays that chronicled the black experience throughout the 20th century. Uh, this is one of those plays. It takes place in 1920, 1920s Chicago. I actually had the privilege to be able to see this play at Baltimore's center stage. I saw it in 2010. Um, I was still going at to Towson University. I had read the play first. As a black man specifically, I love to see work that encapsulates the wholeness of who we are. Because sometimes when you look at certain people and certain projects, although they may have value, they don't always show a fully fleshed human being. Mm. So you can see works where, okay, this is the protagonist. Uh, that's clearly the hero. This is clearly the bad guy. This is the sidekick. This is the best friend. But no, in his work, he gave his characters the chance to really to really shine. Um, I've had the privilege to perform in two of his plays, The Piano Lesson, and then also Two Chains Running. 
I've seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Radio Golf, and also Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Um, and I saw the filmed version of Fences as well. So this play, this play, now movie, what are some things that you really got from it that that you want to share? Um, I think one of the first things, it's not um, one of the main things for me, but if we're going to start it out, one of the first things for me was the psychology of men and shoes. I think that um, it is um, ironic to watch um, a play that was staged at a certain place in time and growing up and knowing that that was a thing. You don't want nobody to ever step on your shoes. It is almost mm-hmm. like spitting in somebody's face <laughs> if they ever stepped on. And don't let them be Jordans. I never owned a pair of Jordans. But or a Tim's, for those, right? yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for those, you know, shoe enthusiasts and just people in general, you know, being out and about, it was a sign of disrespect to mm-hmm. accidentally step on somebody's shoes and I like that um, he dealt with the psychology of shoes and how um, we as a culture have highlighted um, shoes for some reason Uh, we've elevated them to be an important thing Um, and that's for guys and girls men and women um, because women will want their stilettos and their you know (laughs) red bottoms and you know fellas want their Jordans and a number of other things and I think it's interesting um, that he plays on this whole psychology of shoes that the biggest disrespect is not being used. It's not somebody stealing your work. It's not somebody taking advantage of you in the uh, movie and or the play. I found it ironic that we find disrespect in small places because we mm. never had. Is this something that is specific to the black experience about stepping on somebody's shoes like in the white experience is that even a thing and what does that say about us in the black community that that is such a a thing like don't step on my shoes because i don't i've not seen that in um in white circles i think it stands out for me the most because it's not about stepping on your shoes you shoot you wearing the shoes you're gonna walk into some dirt you're gonna get them wet they're gonna get dirt their shoes Mm -hmm. and the fact that people think that the disrespect is in somebody stepping on them versus walking out in the woods and walking out on the dirt and walking out on the concrete is it's mind blowing that Mm -hmm. they find more uh disrespect in um the glamour of shoes versus somebody stepping on them is it's weird to watch people do a certain thing in response to a shoe and or it's weird to watch people particularly in our culture elevate shoes higher than um a thing and you know i'm church they know i'm church um and it even down to the culture of who we are and you know one of the huge old school songs you know i'm old school Old school song is, you know, shoes, shoes, all God's children got yeah. shoes. Like it's a huge ingrained thing in our culture about mm-hmm. shoes for some reason that we elevate them to a place um, to where we're not consumed by our character. We're not consumed by our humility. We're not consumed by um, being brilliant and doing things in excellence. But we are consumed with presentation and being mm-hmm. seen a certain way or having a thing that we can show off, particularly shoes. And it's always interesting to watch people (laughs) elevate shoes and go nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think hearing you talk about that, it's almost like 
especially in the play with uh, the character Levy, it's almost like that was the one thing he could kind of cling on to because as black people historically and today, there's so many things that have been stripped from us. So it's almost like getting pleasure out of certain things. So Levy, of course, is a younger, youngest character in the play. But I think I want to say there was a one scene where he comes in with the shoes where the other characters, the older guys are kind of making fun of him. Like you spent your money on that. Mm-hmm. But even today, we have the same things. A lot of um, times in the black community, we'll spend our money on cars or our rims or our clothes, and then the rent's not paid or the other things that we should, you know, have uh, accountability for are forsaken. But as long as it looks good, as long as it looks good and it's presented well to the world, we're okay. But in reality, you know, we're really suffering about the things that really matter. And no offense to those who do it when I say this, but it's interesting to watch babies who can't walk in Jordans. Right. (laughs) It's interesting to watch, (laughs) you know, those kinds of things. Um, One of the things that I found interesting and one one of the reasons why I also brought it up is because he highlights his shoes, but he never highlights his gift. He is a skilled trumpet player. Even Cutler takes time to acknowledge him as a skilled player, even when Ma Rainey kind of says, I want him on board. And he says, no, he's good at what he does when he gets in the place to do what he needs to do. And he doesn't even highlight that. And I guess I would suggest that, you know, how many times are we highlighting what people can see when we live in an Instagram age and a Facebook age where we stump for the gram and do all these things? We keep highlighting those things that people can see and not highlighting our real gifts, our real talents, our real places where, you know, we're really gifted. What I found interesting as well is, as we talk about uh, Levy, is this door that he is obsessed mm. with. Yeah. Um. One of the lines in the movie is, you know, that door, you see that door? That's what I'm talking about. That door wasn't there before. Mm. And Cutler says to him, Levy, you wouldn't know your right hand from your left hand. And that door wasn't, and if, even if the door wasn't there, now that it's there, why does it matter to you? We still in the same room. And I think I was reading um, a commentary on that is that when he finally does open the door, it leads to a dead end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and why is it that you think he was going to the door? Because at least in the, the film, I can't recall if this is in the play, but in the film, that was definitely something that was marked that he kept going to the, the door. It's almost I saw it as an escape for me. I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you think it was symbolic for anything else? I think um, at the time... It may have been um, psychologically um, for me. I find it interesting that he's obsessed with a door that goes nowhere. Mm, Yeah. He's obsessed to get this door open to see what's behind this door, only to find out that this door goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. And he finds himself stuck behind a door or finally getting access to a door that led him nowhere, which speaks secretly to his life and what he, you know, dealt with in the movie, all these doors he wanted to get into all these avenues he wanted to go to that led him nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, disappointment. There's a lot of disappointment. Hmm. Um, and we don't want to necessarily spoil the movie for those of you who haven't seen it, but there's a lot that the character goes through that he, uh, tells by way of monologue about just his life, his family, the things he's seen, there's a lot of disappointment. Even that door, it led to, in some ways, it led to, to disappointment. Yeah. Consistent disappointment. Yeah, consistent disappointment. 
a disappointment here and there is a you know what we can handle that but consistent disappointment is always a rough road or toll to take yeah yeah repeated <laughs> your thoughts well having seen the play and then going to the um the film uh i think they did a, a great job is always something always has to be left behind to a certain degree when you're going to different mediums like that. Uh, one of the things I appreciated about the film is that I was able to expand a lot of the world that was in the play. Um, by that, you got to see, even in the beginning, you get to see Ma Rainey actually performing on stage and the huge crowd. You got to see the band members walking through the streets of Chicago. You got to see a lot of um, outdoor um, scenes that uh, were not present in the play. So I think they did a good job of um, finding some ways to expand the play. Mm-hmm. I did hear in an interview and from memory, there was dialogue that was cut from the uh, the play. I want to say it could be close to an hour because the play is about two hours or so and the film clocked in maybe an hour and a half, a little over an hour and a half. Um, I think the essence of it is still there. One of the things I was really impressed by, I was reading or not reading, but I saw an interview with the director of the film, George C. Wolfe, and he was talking about the film being a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And I like that because uh, from the interview, they said, I believe the play took place in a more colder time of year, but the, the, uh, the film takes place in July in the heat of the summer. So the heat is almost a character in the play for me. Mm. And I like the imagery of a pressure cooker because they're all in a confined environment, uh, mostly in the recording studio or in the band room. And there's many moments where they're trying to get the fan to work or you just see the sweat pouring down uh, their faces. And it's really good because um, anyone who's in any kind kind of job, really, not just an artist, but uh, sometimes that pressure to perform i liked that uh seeing that and then just so much pressure on ma rainey or or the the band members was manifested by the the heat i think that was a brilliant Mm -hmm. directorial Mm -hmm. choice Mm -hmm. to have that one of the things that august wilson is known for and the integrity remains is his text so uh, he's known for very poetic language when we talk about theater and some of the greats of theater we can think of Shakespeare, Anton Chekhov, Tennessee Williams. But for me, August Wilson is just as good, if not better than a lot of those people who I just mentioned. Mm. Uh, His work is rich. His work is detailed. There is a poetry and a rhythm to how, as actors, we uh, perform his work that is very similar to Shakespeare. He was influenced by a lot of musical um, genres such as jazz um, blues of course which we see heavily in Ma Rainey Mm -hmm. and one of the devices that he uses in terms of relating to jazz is that in classical music it's more of a linear structure but jazz can have moments of being linear but also uh, improvisation so it's most notable in the monologues that the characters have long passages of text which is one person is speaking Because if you go to see a jazz show, you'll notice that uh, there's members of the band who will do solos. Mm -hmm. And that is akin to the monologues. He's giving voice to these characters, these black characters who have been voiceless. 
And he's saying this is their opportunity to tell their story because um, either history has forgotten them, written them out of the textbooks, or their story was told through the lens of someone who was not black. Mm. And he's saying, this is my opportunity to let these characters speak and these characters shine. One of the quotes in the, um, in the story that I really liked, it comes from Ma Rainey. She's talking about the blues and she said, you don't sing to feel better. You sing because that's your way of understanding life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so poignant because one of the themes of the play is Ma Rainey versus Levy. Ma Rainey is of the older generation, Levy's of the younger generation. And in that time period, we really get to see a, a shift of where the musical styles are going. Levy wanted something more upbeat, more up-tempo, faster. Ma wanted something that was more soulful and was slower. And you really see that, that dichotomy and that shift. There's value in both things. Levy is more kind of what people will look at as millennials now, more progressive in a lot of his thinking, where Ma's like, this is my stuff. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Um, I like that quote, though, because there's value in pain. There's value in hurt. And blues has that. She's not trying to escape from that. She's trying to go through it. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in this generation, a lot of us do ourselves a disservice because we're trying to brush past or go over yeah. uh, our hurt and our pain, but that hurt and our pain is what makes us. So it's not about retreating from it or ignoring it, but how can we live life so we can go through the hurt and through the pain and come through. And uh, Ma Rainey, she was so progressive. She was so ahead of her time. And uh, I'm really just love that August Wilson chose to, to highlight her. I like Ma Rainey because she has a work ethic. Um, and I was, you'll hear me say this a thousand times. I'm old school <laughs> and that's, you know, that's something that's important that, that work ethic. Um, and you can relate to this. I mean, maybe even more extreme than I am, but I take pride in my work. I want it to be noticed when I'm not there, when I'm not mm. present. Um, and not to say that I'm the only one who can do what I do because it speaks volumes when you can train somebody to do what you do in your absence, but they still know it wasn't you. Mm, yeah. um, and that's what Ma Rainey represents for me. She represents a level of excellence or a level of just um, a ethic that says, I know what I'm bringing. And because I know what I'm bringing, I know what I won't tolerate for what I'm bringing because you want what I have to offer. Mm. Um, whereas Levy knows that he has something, but Levy doesn't understand the ethic behind it, which does again, like you said, remind me of millennials. Um, and and even the next generation behind uh, us, because there is this instant, I'm going to be famous tomorrow without the, the put in, without the work, without the due diligence. And, you know, sometimes you've got to not just learn how to sit your hind parts down and be taught, but you got to be able to receive. And I think that um, a lot of times uh, millennials wrestle with the generation ahead of us for several reasons. Won't really go into all of that right now. But for one of the major reasons why millennials wrestle with the older generation is because the older generation never really kind of said that this comes with work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it comes with a certain thing. They made it like it was exclusive Mm. without explanation. And now you have a group of millennials who 
said, oh, I can get that just as fast. It took you 50 years to get that. I can get that in five days. Mm. Yeah, sometimes and, they have to pay your dues. Yes, and, yeah. they, and, and they want that, and they have that. And so I see, you know, that clash between the two. She knows that he has talent, but she also knows that he's not ready. Mm. Um, yeah, he knows that she is classic, but he also feels like she's outdated. Um, and so those are things that I think they end up bumping heads about because uh, there's a viewpoint. Um, and one of the things that I um, wish um, had been done, not just in the movie, but in the generation in the times even now, is that, you know, the older folks would share their stories and say why they do what they do. Yeah. And that young people would posture themselves to receive and hear that and learn from wisdom. I think that, you know, Wisdom is so important and so powerful because wisdom says, I learned from you saying it. Mm. I don't have to do it. You said the stove is hot. Got it. I ain't even going to try it. Yeah. Because I believe you. (laughs) If you said it was hot, I believe you enough not to touch it. That's wisdom. Yeah. Levy becomes very arrogant because it's just like, I'm I'm telling you not to do that, Levy, or I'm trying to show you a better way or a different way. And Levy's less like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, it's um, it's almost like I wish there there was a bridge because there's so much that Levy could receive if he just allowed himself to because he does want it fast. And I think it is important, like you said, to um, to be able to wait. You know, there, there's power in the wait. Strength is in the wait. Strength in the wait. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, also, they both have something to learn from each other, because I think um, one of the things about being uh, creative and, and this is um they're all musicians. So any kind of artist, I think can also see themselves in the characters. There's value in what Ma says, but also with what Levy is saying, uh, one of the things that he keeps reiterating in the beginning of the play, um, the whole thing is that he has his own version of Ma Rainey's black bottom. Mm. His version is a bit more faster where the other band members, I think one of the characters says, you know, I just play what's on the page. And uh, some people have that mentality of, I just play what's on the page. I don't challenge what things are. I just do what I'm told. Where Levy is, hey, you know, why do we have to always do it this way? Why can't we spice it up and do something different? And that to me is almost an artist spirit because as an artist, it's always about finding the truth. And the truth sometimes can take on different forms um, based on who you are and who we are as a, you know, um, accumulation of our experiences and although levy is young there is some value i think too it doesn't always have to be done the same way but one of the things i think we had talked about when we saw the movie is uh the spirit of being able to serve mm-hmm. because although there's a place for what levy is saying he still was a member of ma rainey's band mm-hmm. so as a band member although i may have these other things i want to do can i still have that but be be able to be to serve because if you're serving someone else's vision ultimately you have to realize it's their vision mm-hmm. it's not yours and i think that's one of the things that uh levy really didn't embrace was the fact that this is my rainy's band <laughs> and uh one of the characters cutler he kind of always almost was like a liaison between my rainy and uh and levy and yeah. the rest of the band members <laughs> Where almost like it's like Ma Rainey knew she would go to to ten, <laughs> or she knows that she you know don't mess you deal with her. With him so I don't have right. to. Right, yeah. like you you deal with him, so I don't have to. So I need you to tell this to him because if I do it, you know, I'm a slap him or whatever. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, Levy is a he's interesting. He's a very um he's a very complicated character. I would love to actually play him one day. <laughs> you know, when uh, we're out of this pandemic. I think he when I saw it on um on stage, uh it was just a a brilliant performance and of course the film Chadwick Boseman, it is a brilliant yeah. performance. Um it is an actor's shout dream. Out to yeah, shout out to Chadwick. Um, two of the highlights: Chadwick Boseman by Ola Davis. They yeah. both were great. They both deserve Oscars, even if they don't get them. Yeah. The film, the work is still great. We don't need that to validate their performances. And it's just icing on the cake. Be no Oscars till the springtime. Oh yeah, I did hear that. <laughs> so, although I had stopped watching a while ago, anyway. <laughs> No, but to speak to one of the things that you said, which I thought was important, and I think that it's important for people to understand, because that's not just um, something that happens in the movie. I think that it's a life lesson. What Levy missed in teaching or in hearing or in a lesson that he could have received um, that could have been monumental for his life, it was his rearrangement of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom Mm. that opened the door for his original song. That yeah. there would be no opportunity for him to even have a band or have a sound or have a song had he not taken the opportunity to elevate and or be creative with what he had. And I think that um, that's a lesson just for our generation that that mm-hmm. you can don't dismiss um, what you've been given as if it's not profitable. No, elevate it and, you know, use your gifting to um make it what you think it could be, but don't forget it came from somewhere. And that wasn't you, that your foundation came from another place. Yeah. That when you said that, it just sparked in my mind, something that I didn't really even consider before. So in the, uh, the play, the whole thing is that my rating and her band are recording, uh, songs in this studio. And there's these two like white producers who are there to kind of guide it along the way. But I wrote down, Levy did what the white men did, Mm -hmm. was that he tried to take her song and make it to what he wanted to be. And in the play, they do the same thing to him, ultimately. But he's (laughs) obsessed with their experience and their power that he will do and echo what they do. How is it that Ma Rainey doesn't even know that somebody else rewrote one of her songs? How is that possible? How is he rewriting stuff that she's already done? without her even knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering why do you think she allowed him to be in the band? I think that sometimes people see problematic children and, and problematic people, um, and understand and, or see themselves Mm, and they see hope in them that they didn't see in themselves. You have an opportunity that I didn't have, a door that I didn't have, an oper- you know, experience that I could never have. And because of that, I had to wrestle with these things or I had to diminish myself or I had to make myself feel small or I had to, you know, have levels of insecurity on 10 or whatever the case may be. But you don't have to have that. And because you don't have to have that, when she sees those things in him, she has hope. It's not just that she sees his gifting. It's that she has hope that your gifting will, you know, I'm church, make room for you, (laughs) that it'll open a door for you. And you need to understand that because you actually have the package. 
Ma Rainey understands that there's something about her presentation that the people don't like. There's something about her attitude that they don't like. There's something about her disposition that they don't like, but they do love her voice. Yeah, yeah. And she understands that to where she also understands that Levy actually has talent. Yeah. And he's actually presentable and he actually could be a great thing. He's just got to get beyond the same things that she wrestled with. And he didn't want to and or he didn't even know he had it in him. And I, I would suggest that they clashed because she had more hope for him than he had for himself. Mm, yeah, that's like life. You know, sometimes people have more hope in us than we have for them ourselves. Truth. Sometimes you just you can't hear. You can't hear that unless you you believe it is in like in one ear and out the other. You got to posture yourself to hear everything yeah. that somebody's saying to you ain't a dig. Everything that somebody's saying to you ain't, you know, a, a, a check or they try and get you together. You know, some people are, <laughs> some people genuinely are, but for those who aren't, you've got to be able to discern and decipher the difference so you can posture yourself to receive those lessons. I, you know, can recall a number of moments where I heard something that I didn't like to have heard in the moment, but I, after stepping back from it was like, Oh, that was, I needed to hear that. That was good. And I was glad I heard it. You know, one of the things I always say is I'd rather fall down two steps than 20. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Because catch me early. Don't let me get that far in nonsense or making a mistake or whatever. And then, you know, just go, no, catch me early. Yeah, I think that um, that comes with growth, being able to to hear in that kind of way, because sometimes we, we hear out of a place of being uh, triggered or out of a place of, um, you know, of uh, a filter of some kind. So we're not necessarily hearing what exactly is uh, is being said. I think sometimes when we can just step back and just take it as information and then choose, OK, is that something that I want to take in that could work for me or something? I say, OK, that's not for me. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to talk on the, the podcast eventually is uh, the whole thing about feedback and criticism. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> also, soon, yeah. And also, <laughs> what is the distinction between feedback and criticism? Because <laughs> I think they're two different things. And reception. Yeah. Uh, we go in there, Saints. Y'all get ready. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's going to be a good one. So we shouldn't go too much into that now since it's our first episode here. <laughs> Absolutely. But get ready, Saints. Get ready. Yes. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. I'm getting ready. <laughs> so was there anything else for you in the movie that you want to talk about um yes i love toledo's um monologue mm, yes about the leftovers yeah uh he goes into this whole spiel um for those um who haven't seen it without doing a spoiler alert or whatever it's really not a spoiler alert i guess yeah i mean it, it's been out as a play okay, but right, you know right. more people probably will watch the movie than they've seen the play okay but for those um, who watch it, there's a moment where Toledo is uh, sitting at the piano. He takes time to sit at the piano key mm-hmm. and he starts to play. And while he is playing, he is playing a number of um, chords and sounds and doing certain things. And he's not playing a fluid song. Mm-hmm. He's just playing where he feels is necessary to hit a key. While he is doing all of that, he talks about this scenario of a stew and having this great stew. Then after you eat this stew, you see some other stuff still left out on the counter from having this stew. Mm. He talks about carrots and other things. And he basically gets to the point where he says, you had this stew and you've had your fill fill of a meal um, because you've 
put all these great things in it for it to be excellent. But then you start to see that you have leftovers. Mm, yeah. Um, and he basically says, you know, uh, black people have been treated like leftovers. Yeah. The leftovers. Um, and that was monumental to me because one of the things he climaxes on, um, and most people would see this as a bitter moment, um, is he says, I can't wait for them to find out, or, or sometimes black people don't find out or don't know that they're the leftovers. Mm, yeah. Um, and one of the shows that I'm also, you know, into on Netflix, shout out to Netflix, um, is this show called um uh it's about leftovers leftover something anyway oh yeah the cooking show yes yeah it is an elevation of um taking leftovers and making it elevated cuisine mm. you take these leftovers and you make a five-star meal and i think that that moment was monumental for me because when he speaks about being leftovers i think he realized he was a part of a group of people who were the leftovers yeah. too late too late that he didn't know that there was an opportunity to um redo his career or re um uh, redesign or redevelop or re-showcase himself that there's a second wind the second leg and Mm. he didn't get it um but i also think that it speaks to black excellence and how we have always taken the leftovers and made something extraordinary from it because you can make some great leftovers. Let me tell you something. <laughs> uh, leftovers can be better than the original dish. I don't know why <laughs> people don't like leftovers. Because right. once those seasonings sit in that... Yeah, all right, marinate. I ain't going to deal with y'all on that. <laughs> I ain't going to deal with y'all on that. But I'm just saying, y'all let them seasonings sit in yes. for a little bit. It'll bless your life. <laughs> y'all like that fast food. Get delivered. Right. Get delivered. <laughs> there was that one moment about... Ma Rainey talking about her voice, uh, right? Yes. yes. I cannot let this go by yes. without speaking about the moment where uh, Ma Rainey steps up and she says, they don't care nothing about me. All mm. they want is my voice. My voice, And yes. I learned that. She said, I didn't always know that. I yeah. learned that. And they're going to treat me the way I want to be treated because they can't do nothing with me without my voice. Yeah. And she creates a standard for herself because she knows that she has something that they want. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing to do because sometimes a lot of people get abused and misused and mistreated because of their um, what they have to offer, Mm -hmm. because they don't understand that what they have to offer is the only thing that is to offer. So if you walk away, ain't going to be a thing. Right, right. If you take your toys out the sandbox, ain't going to be no toys in the sandbox. And Ma Rainey understood that. And because she understood that, she developed a way to be treated. Um, And when you know you bring something to the table, I think you can develop how you're treated. Now, one of the things that Ma Rainey does to a disservice to herself is that she's always on guard. Yeah. So where she's constantly protecting what she thinks is her gift and her voice, mm. but it's really herself. Mm. Um, and she confuses, and I won't say confuses um, because I can't speak to the character um, just in the sense of how I interpret it, but she misunderstands the value of her voice with the value of herself. Mm. Um, and so she's willing to be, you know, mean and hard and, you know, have this exterior about her um, that really ain't got nothing to do with her voice because you do. 
I got an opportunity to download a lot of her music. And if you hear her, there's something in her voice. There's yeah. something uh, extraordinary um, about her voice that was, you believed it. You believed what she talked about. And you believed in a good way. Yeah. When is the blues happy? <laughs> yeah. It's life. Like she you said. made you yeah. feel good about owning the blues. Yeah, today is garbage, but I'm just glad to be alive type stuff. I think that one of the things that's interesting is that uh, one, sometimes we let our gifts define us. And I'm wondering for uh, for Ma Rainey, how much of that came into the equation, because she was treated like a, a product pretty much by mm-hmm. uh, the entertainment industry in, in the um, her manager and the producer and the in uh, the story that, like you said, it was transactional. I I don't care about you. <laughs> you are a black woman. I, I don't like black people, but you can make me some money because right now you're the hot thing. And what's interesting in the play is that during that time period, it was kind of shifting towards another direction. So I think a part of the the brilliance of um, the performance and the story is that there is some anxiety there because a part of her probably knows that my days may be numbered as I may not be the Ma Rainey anymore. There may be other people coming along that could take that uh that throne for me but it is um it is very transactional and sometimes we find ourselves as people in the in transactional relationships where it's not that you see me or you want me you want what i can do yeah, for you yeah you know i need you you know to, to pray for me i need you to encourage me I, I you're the friend who gives me money you know um yeah they assign certain things that they can get from you it's a a, a relationship that doesn't really have reciprocity and, and we see that here. It is completely transactional. But what I love is that she says, you know what? I know the game. Mm-hmm. And because I know it, I'm going to stand here. And the one scene where she gets the Coca-Cola and she <laughs> says, I'm going to take all the time in the world and I'm going to drink this Coca-Cola. <laughs> and it's not really about the Coke. It's about <laughs> this is a move of saying that this is me taking my stand, you know, because you can't do nothing without my voice, uh, which makes the the scene towards the end that much more heartbreaking mm. when you see the um the difficulty and the hesitation when she finally signs over mm. uh that contract so that they can then have her voice she's put her voice into the music box of the machine that she mentions they finally have it and now as she as she compares it to like a whore you know it's transactional i'm done with you i did my thing now i've moved on yeah <laughs> and now um so many, so many of us in general as people, but specifically uh, black artists, even even today, I would suggest it's transactional. The yeah. studio, the company, they own the rights to the music. How many times have we heard of uh, black artists specifically, you know, getting Selling into some kind of trouble? Of records and yeah. Making no money. Yeah. Even in the play, she probably got a fraction of the cost of what her white counterparts would have gotten. You know, there there were no royalties or things like that. The most of her money probably was made for from actually performing and doing live performances, not necessarily from recording things in the studio. And she was probably more. I, I always enjoy a live show. I don't care what nobody says. Yeah, it's always better live. I don't care. You can put it, sing your heart out in the studio. Wonderful. Appreciate your kindness. But it's yeah. nothing like seeing somebody live and being in the atmosphere of somebody who is in their um, niche or their creative um, pocket. One of the things that um, Viola Davis says in an interview is that the only thing Ma had in her life, the only thing that she lived for that made her worthy was her voice. 
Mm. And I thought that was powerful because mm. sometimes we do make our gifting or we link our gifting to worth. And it does bring value to us, but it is not the completeness of us. Because if you couldn't do what you were gifted to do anymore, does that take away from your value or does that take away from who you are? Or does yeah. that take away from other places where you might have value? It, it It's interesting to see that she felt like that. Yeah, I think that we are more than what we do. What we do is only a fraction of who we are. Who we are is far greater and far more divine than what it is that we do. Um, there's a quote, I'm not sure uh, who it's attributed to, but uh, don't look up to anyone, talking about people at least. Uh, don't look up to anyone, don't look down on anyone, just see people for who they are. Yeah. And that's really how I do my best to live my life. Because if you look up to me, you'll put me on a pedestal. If you look down on me, then you'll be condescending. But if you just see me as who I am, you'll do like August Wilson did with these characters in the play. You'll see human beings, human beings who can have joyful, divine moments. Also, some really messy moments. There's some things that happen in the play that are absolutely uh, horrific. Yeah. But you see the humanity. It's not just violence for the sake of violence. But, okay, I see the depth of pain and hurt. And because you've been hurt, they say, you know, hurt people, hurt people. I see the pathology, the pattern, the psychology of why these characters do what they do. And that makes them human. It doesn't make them a caricature or a stereotype. It makes them human. Well, how many times have you, you know, received a call or email or whatever the case may have been where they never really asked how you were, hadn't talked to you in forever, but said, can you do this? Because yeah, I hate that what you're gifting. You know, <laughs> I, I understand where she's coming from, that you get the call and they really don't care about you. And you do have to kind of reposition yourself or reposture yourself so you don't even feel um, so you don't become a detriment to your own gift. Yeah, I think one of the things you said earlier is just awareness. Yeah. When you're aware of it, then you can make a choice from a place of self energy to say, okay, I'm aware that that's what that is. I can choose how I participate in that. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's what she did. You know, she chose to do it her own way, as opposed to someone who may not be aware and, and may find some kind of detriment to it. If you're aware that's half the battle, knowing it's half the battle. And I think we, we definitely get to see that from her. She knows she's very, very, very wise. Yeah. Uh, some of the best scenes I love are between her and Cutler. Yeah. Um, I like Cutler. Yeah. a smart guy. Smart <laughs> yeah. guy. Yeah, and uh, just the scene where they're just sitting and you just see that she's just very transparent, talking about her voice, talking about music. Uh, you just see a great friendship, a great connection that they have that I think is really, um, that's really good. There's, it's a great ensemble, great ensemble work. Um, Cutler that had I, hope for everybody. That's what I liked about Cutler. Yeah, Cutler had he did. hope for everybody. It wasn't nothing that Levy could do that made him feel some kind of way about Levy. It wasn't anything that Mount Rainey could do that make him feel some kind of way about Mount Rainey. He felt like he saw the best in everybody. And I think that yeah. is why I like his character a lot because it's hard to see. But uh, th that is, you know, uh, something that I, I do. I guess I can relate to his character. Because I want to see the best. And I do sometimes get frustrated <laughs> trying to keep the medium or making sure that, you know, everybody's kind of thriving because you want everybody to do well. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great, great leader. I think a great leader wants everyone to do well because of 
you do well, I do well, we all do we well. We all do well. That's uh, the whole thing about a team. And there's no I in team. I just came up with that. Yikes. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, in closing, uh, go see My Rennie's Black Bottom. It's on Netflix. It's right in your home. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful film, a powerful film that chronicles the lives of these black characters. Uh, someone said the universal stems from the specific. So these are a specific group of people who happen to be black. But I believe that anyone, whether you're white, black, whatever, you can relate in some form or way to what's happening here. So go see it. Any takeaways you had? Um, black excellence. Black excellence. August Wilson is ahead of his time when it comes to black excellence. I'd say go see it for that mere, you know, reason that you get to your eyes get to be open to something that's extraordinary, um, particularly playwrights and, you know, people who are, you know, stage centered and things like that. He opens the door and the eye um, to showcase uh, life on stage. And that's, you know, extraordinary to me. It's excellence. Yeah. Well, that brings us to our segment of the show called Fields of Vision. During this segment of the show, we highlight a quote or text to help encourage and or inspire you. And today, the quote that I chose is from Felicia Rashad. And this quote I found a long time ago during an interview that she gave where she was talking about her mother and the things that her mother imparted to her when she was a child. And she said this was one of the things that stuck with her. Quote, the inner reality creates the outer form. The inner reality creates the outer form. Unquote. For me, life is what we make it. Our perspective informs our world. I invite you to not allow life to happen to you. Instead, moment by moment, we have the ability to create the life we want. Be willing to heal. Be willing to let go. Be willing to evolve and release anything or anyone that doesn't serve your highest and greatest good. Once we master our internal world, the outside world will fall into place. And with that, that brings us to the end of our premiere episode off. of Vantage Point. <laughs> and we thank you all so much for joining us. We look forward to you joining us next time. New episodes will air every Tuesday. Remember to follow Our Father's Table on Facebook. I am Troy. I am Aaron. Until we meet again, be well.